Ever since I was a little guy, I have loved the game of golf. Love golf, enjoy golf. When I was a kid, my grandfather bought me golf clubs. I like watching golf on TV. That's something people make fun of me for, you know, on Sunday afternoons. Usually the golfing on the TV is the pre-nap ritual, but I actually like watching the golf on the TV. I've liked golf so long, Tiger Woods was a role model for me at one point. But I should say that I like golf, I enjoy golf, because if you call me hacking away with a golf club playing golf, it's an insult to the game. And really the peak of my golfing career, it happened when I was in junior high. So I was in junior high, I was going with my friend Doug and his dad, and we were playing at Shadow Valley Golf Course, just off Highway 55 down there on Eagle Road. We were at Shadow Valley, we had played two holes, we came up to the third hole. It was a par three, which means you have three chances to get it in the hole until you start getting your scorecard added up. And so when you get to the hole, there's this tee box, and the only thing between the tee box and the hole is this huge ravine. And so seeing it was a par three, I went to my golf bag and I grabbed my five wood out of all the clubs. Now, if you know golf at all, a five wood should be able to get twice the distance you would need for this hole, but I'm really bad, so I went for the five wood. And as I was teeing my ball up, getting there ready, the golf course attendant kind of drove up. And basically, this guy's job is to tell you you're going too slow if you're playing golf. So again, I'm telling you, I was pretty bad. So realizing I had this audience, the golf course attendant, my friend Doug, his dad, I teed up the ball, and I just went for it. And then, the impossible happened. I hit the ball straight. That's pretty impossible in its own right, but it was straight towards the hole. And it bounced and it landed on the green. I was thinking, oh my gosh, I actually hit it on the green, this is a miracle. And then it started rolling. And it rolled a little closer. I thought, no way, it rolled a little closer. And then you just see it disappear. And I had, couldn't believe what had just happened. The golf course attendant was cheering, my friend's dad was cheering. The worst golfer in history, me, had hit a hole in one. <laughs> I had done the impossible. And I bring that story up because we think of the impossible in our world, it excites us, it inspires us. Because a lot of times human achievement goes beyond what we even thought could happen. For example, there was a while where we couldn't even fly in the air. We thought that was crazy. Then we flew to the moon. There was a couple of collegiate hockey players, and then they beat the best team in the world, Russia, in the Olympic finals. We stared up at this huge mountain in California, El Capitan, thinking no one can climb that. And then a guy climbed it without any safety hardware or harness. We got this new video game thinking, hey, this is fun, and then somebody got the Killionaire in Halo 3 doing the impossible. And while we feel these things about the impossible, it also can make us really frustrated and depressed and angry because if it lives up to its name, we can never achieve it. And if you've been hanging with us the last couple months, we've been going through Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And as Christians, as believers, we want to live the way Jesus has for us to live. Not only do we honor and glorify God and enjoy doing life with him, but it truly is how we were meant to live. It's where true fulfillment in this life is found. We think, okay, I'm on board with that. 
But then you read Jesus' words and you think, really? Seriously? This is your standards? A righteousness that exceeds the most holy people in the world? This is impossible. Turning the other cheek? Always being forgiven? You know what's harder than flying a rocket to the moon? Not getting angry with someone your whole life or insulting them. You know what makes my hole-in-one seem like a cakewalk? Not having one glance of lust your whole life. How do we do this, Jesus? And so when we read this, we think, well, he can't be serious about this. I mean, really, it's just meant to show us that we're not good enough, that we need God's grace, and that is partially true. But what if Jesus was serious? How can we actually live this out, live the standards that Jesus has for us in the Sermon on the Mount? How do we do it? How do we do the impossible? How can we read this and have hope and encouragement and not just think, well, that's a pipe dream. Let's turn to Romans. Well, today we're going to see in Matthew 7, Jesus show us how to do the impossible. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. And where this falls in Jesus' most famous teaching here on the Sermon on the Mount is it really lines up with everything that's been said so far. You know, Jesus made it clear that his standards are high, that following Jesus, being kingdom citizens, you need to have a high standard of righteousness. And if you were sitting there on that grassy hill with Jesus, you'd think, how can I do this? A lot like how we think today sitting in these pews. Well, Jesus gives us some hope. Jesus shows us how here today. And so in our text today, we're going to see how to do the impossible. We're going to see who makes it possible. And we're going to see the best possible thing that we can do. Matthew 7, 7. So the first thing we see is how to do the impossible. How to do it. And it's simple. We need to ask. We need to ask. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, Jesus gives us three words, three verbs for how persistent we are to be with God. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And in the Greek, all three of these words are in the present tense, which means we do them in the present, moment by moment, continually. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. And with as much emphasis as Jesus places on that, we see an equal emphasis on a promise connected to it in verse 8. It says, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. An amazing promise there by Jesus. Ask and we'll receive. Seek and we'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And what sounds like something pretty simple here, it actually sounds to be simply untrue. We think, seriously? All I got to do is ask and he'll give it to me? I mean, if that's true, then shouldn't we all be praying for Lamborghinis right now and a nice garage to fit all those Lambos in? God will give us whatever we want. We just have to ask him. Some people take it that way. They think God will give you whatever you want. You just got to ask. Oh, he didn't give it to you? I guess you need more faith. I guess you didn't do good enough. I guess you need to up your game. Some people take it that way, but that is not what this means. It doesn't mean God will give you whatever you want without qualification, because when you think about that, it makes us God. We're playing God. We're manipulating him. 
We're like Aladdin. We just got to rub our little prayer lamp and God pops out like a genie, giving us whatever wish we want, whenever we want it, however we want it. That's not what this means. So if it doesn't mean that we can get whatever we want by asking, what is God actually giving us? In verse 7, it says, ask and it will be given to you. What is the it that God is going to give us? Well, if you think about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kicked it off with a really provocative statement. He said in chapter 5, blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit. Not if you're physically poor or without, but the poor in spirit, meaning you realize you spiritually don't bring anything to the table. You're spiritually bankrupt. We're in desperate need, dependence on God. We don't have some innate great spirituality that we're bringing to the table that God wants to recruit us with. No, we come empty. We need God to give us all good things. And throughout the rest of the sermon, Jesus explains what that means. We've touched on them so far. The character of following Jesus, having that forgiving attitude, being peaceable, being gentle, being compassionate, being pure. The list goes on. And as Jesus explains what this is, then he comes to this point of asking, and it will be given to you. So what does God give us when we ask for the kingdom virtues, when we ask to have the character of a follower of Christ, God says he will form that in us. Really what we're asking for is we're asking to have a greater connection, a deeper with God life here on earth. And when we think of it that way, we're not asking for the gifts here on earth, the treasures on earth. Sadly, my Lamborghinis would fall into that category. We're asking for a greater spiritual life, to be more and more living out our identity as children of God. And when you think about this, it implies something. If we have to ask God to give us something, that means we can't achieve it on our own. On your own, you cannot make this happen. The message of the New Testament is not one of self-empowerment. It's the exact opposite. It shows that you are powerless, and we worship the God of all power who gives us all good things. So you might think, okay, that makes sense. We understand God's not going to give us every single thing we want. We understand that God will give us good things, things that he values. But still, this doesn't seem that true. Because how many of us have asked for good things? How many of us have asked for things that God values, and we're still waiting for him to give those to us? We're still waiting to receive those things from him. It doesn't really seem like this follows through. Unanswered prayer is difficult. It reminds me of a movie I saw one time about this man who had just fallen on hard times. You know they say when it rains, it pours? Well, it was pouring on this guy. And like a lot of us, he was angry, he was frustrated, but then he started to blame God. He was shaking his fist at the Almighty, saying, you don't know what you're doing, God. Why would you do this? Why would you have this happen to me? I could do better than you. Almost the book of Job playing out. And so the movie teases this idea. Okay, this guy says he knows better than God. Let's see how he would do if he had the almighty power. And in this movie, there's a scene where he's getting all these prayer requests. And if you don't like email, trigger warning. <laughs> in this scene, he gets millions of emails 
every two or three minutes coming in, prayers coming into his inbox. He says, you know what? I know what I'd do. I'd make people like God. I'd be better than God. I'll just reply all and say yes to every single prayer request. Everyone clicks reply all, yes. And instead of making the world a better place, it destroys the world. There's chaos, there's fires, there's riots, there's all sorts of craziness going on. Millions of people won the lottery and were out of money. People are fighting. It's Christmas every day because some kid prayed for that. A woman lost 47 pounds on the Krispy Kreme diet. These things aren't supposed to happen. And this illustrates the fact that we are finite and God is infinite. And we don't understand all the ramifications of our prayers, even when they seem great and good to us. C.S. Lewis has been quoted in saying that when an infinite, let me get it right here, if an infinitely wise being listens to the request of finite and foolish creatures, of course he will sometimes grant and sometimes refuse them. And this is easy for us to understand when it comes to losing weight on a Krispy Kreme diet or winning the lottery. But it's a lot more difficult when it comes close to home, when it's an unbelieving spouse we've been praying for for years, when it's a job that doesn't seem to be falling into our lap. It's the gift of having a child, and we don't seem to be receiving that. It's a lot more difficult when we're wrestling with those type of prayers. And we must realize that we have a good father and we need to trust his infinite wisdom. And I know that's much easier said than done. But think about this. Even Jesus understands this. Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was going to be crucified, go through a horrible death, brutal pain and suffering. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating. It's like drops of blood. And he says, Father, if it be your will, may this cup pass from me. If there's any way to avoid the suffering and agony, let's do that. Now, of course, as God, Jesus knew that wasn't going to happen. But instead of God saving Jesus from this brutal suffering and death, he saved the entire world through Jesus' death. And so we must understand, even in something horrible from human perspective, like the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, an innocent man, God in his infinite wisdom used that for the best gift this world and this universe has ever and will ever see. It all boils down to how we view God. And this might seem crazy. It might not make any sense. And so Jesus turns and gives us another lesson in this in the next few verses. We saw how to do the impossible. We need to ask. Now we see who makes it possible our good Father. In verse 9 and verse 10, Jesus begins with the word or. It's almost to say, or to put it another way. This is illustrating his point of what he just said. And it's kind of interesting that he immediately shifts focus to the character of God because he knows when we're talking about prayer, when we're talking about asking and receiving, it really boils down to our view of God. And especially how we view unanswered prayers talks about our view of God. Verse 9 says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? 
So before we saw God isn't like some genie in a bottle giving us everything we want. He's not just a yes man. And here Jesus is saying God isn't some cruel, mean, withholding father. In verse 9, a stone kind of looks like a loaf of bread. God isn't up there pulling tricks on you. He doesn't give you a stone if you ask for bread and say, ha, 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 look at them. They don't know. They think it's bread. It's really something bad. That's not who God is. He's not mean and puts us in danger instead of giving us a fish, giving us a serpent, and putting us in jeopardy. And this makes sense. A good parent will sometimes withhold requests from their children for their children's good because they have a deeper and a bigger perspective. You know, you'd be a horrible parent if your child said, hey, I want to play with a hairdryer in the bathtub. You'd be a horrible parent if your child wanted to play hide-and-seek on Eagle Road or tag. That would be terrible. Instead, you say no because you understand and have a bigger perspective of what's happening in their life. And how much more with God? You know, we're pretty smart, but we're still finite. There's still a lot of things we don't know, and God sees it all. And in his wisdom, he gives us good gifts from that. In verse 11, it's interesting. He says, he calls us evil. Now, Jesus isn't saying we're as bad as we could possibly be, but we're born with this sin nature. And what's really interesting in verse 11, he says, if you then are evil, he doesn't include himself in that. Jesus is pure. He's without a sin nature. He says, if you are evil, if you have this sin nature that affects your motivation and what you do, if you have that and even you can give good gifts, then how much more will our Father, who's pure, who's holy, who has no sin, who is no sin, how much more will he take care of us, trust in him, believe in him? And I know there's a couple of objections that might come up when we think about praying and trusting in God. We talked about one of them. What about unanswered prayers? But another one might be, you know, is prayer really necessary? Look around. There's millions, if not billions of people who don't believe in Jesus, who don't believe in God, who might even curse God and they're doing just fine. They seem to be getting what they need. You know, in fact, some of the things we pray for and we're asking God for and we're waiting for him to provide for us, these people get without asking. So what's the point of doing this? Well, it brings up a good point and a good question. We've got to remember that God is the creator of the entire world. He's the creator God. He makes the rain fall on good people's crops and bad people's crops. He gives health to the wicked and to the godly. He gives prosperity to the wicked and to the godly. These things are called common grace, what God gives to humanity just as being their creator. But to those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, God gives something much more. He gives salvation, eternal life with God. And he forms us through the power of the Holy Spirit to resemble his character, his special grace. And this morning, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, now's the time to do this. You've received common grace from God, good things. He kept your heart beating this morning. He might have put some food on your table. He's provided for you in many different ways. But God can give you the best gift ever, eternal life. If you realize you're a sinner and you deserve eternity away from God because you've tried to be your own God, you've deserved hell, 
And if you put your faith in Jesus, that he lived a perfect life, died for your sins, then his perfect life is credited to you. You have eternal life with God, and you're now one of his children. And we can ask for these salvation gifts, for him to form that character, the forgiveness of sins, the deliverance of evil, the daily provisions. So that's one thing we might run into. But we also might think, okay, I understand that God's not going to give me everything. I understand he knows more than me. I understand that prayer is important, but really, if God knows everything, if he knows what I need, if he's not withholding and I don't need to bully him or convince him or coerce him to bless me, then why even pray? Because do you wait for your kids to ask you specifically for things they need before you give it to them? Or do you give them the things they need? We give them the things they need. So why would God withhold it until we actually pray to him? And that's another good question. And really, it has more to do with us than it has to do with God. Because God, it makes clear right here in these passages, he is ready to bless us. But the real question is whether we are ready to receive that blessing. Because prayer is the way, the means that God created for us to express our dependence on him, to express our neediness, to express that we are poor in spirit and we have nothing to bring to the table. You know, sometimes Christians talk about prayer where we need to prevail or we need to win or using some of that kind of language. Well, when we pray, we don't prevail on God like Jacob in the Old Testament. Instead, we prevail over ourselves. We beat ourselves because we come to a point of submitting to God. Really, if you think about it, that's the first step of turning from being your own God, from being self-sufficient, to looking to the true God and asking for his sufficiency. Because you're asking God in prayer, you're saying to him, I can't do it on my own. And so prayer is necessary because it's how we express that humble dependence. It's how we show that we submit to God. And in the Old Testament, when it said Jacob wrestled with God, he didn't beat God, he didn't pin God down or anything. Really, God beat him and got him to the point of surrender so he'd be ready to receive God's gifts. There was a wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills in the NFL named Steve Johnson. It was back in 2010. And Steve Johnson and the Bills, they were playing their rivals, the Pittsburgh Steelers. The game was tight. It was tied up. Anybody could win this. And as soon as the ball was snapped on this big play, Steve Johnson ran a route, and he was wide open in the end zone. This was the game on the line. The ball was thrown to him, and he dropped it. Just bounced right off of his hands. Well, apparently behind the scenes, something we don't see on the TV, Steve, in his mind, had been keeping up his part of the bargain. He had been worshiping God 24-7, according to him. He had done his part, but God didn't do his part. Not only did Steve drop the ball, but in his eyes, God also dropped the ball too. God didn't fulfill his part of the bargain. And after that game, he put this tweet up on his Twitter page. He said, I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. Thanks, though. That's what Steve Johnson had to say. And I bring this up because a lot of times we can hear this teaching of Jesus And we can say, okay, I agree with that. I'm on board with that. That makes sense. But when the the play-by-play of life comes in our day-to-day experience, we can act a lot more like Steve Johnson. And sometimes if we're not careful, some of the people we listen to, 
Sometimes preachers, sometimes authors can get us in this mindset too, where if you do enough, then God needs to bless you. If you do enough, then God will answer your prayers. If you have better church attendance, if you give more, if you sacrifice more, if you read your Bible more, even if you pray more and more and more, then God's obligated. Then that's his end of the bargain. But that's not true, and that's not what God is telling us here. If we ever twist the message of Jesus to be, you need to earn God's favor, that's not a Christian message. The message of the New Testament is all good things, good gifts that God gives to us are given by his grace alone. We don't earn them. We don't merit them. We can't. Or else we have some manipulative control over God. So when you realize he's our good father, and we need to submit and surrender and trust that his timing is perfect. So we've seen how we can do the impossible. We ask. We've seen who makes it possible, our good father. Now what's the best possible thing we can do? Well, it's this. Keep knocking on heaven's door. Keep asking. Keep knocking on God's door. And a lot of times, this is the last thing we think of. You know, in our world, a lot of times, there's no such thing as God, or God set everything in motion, and now he's distant. And so in our world, the best practice is to come up with a better strategy, a better scheme, better ways to get what you want, track these key performance indicators. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But sometimes we put way too much trust in that, and that can creep into our lives as Christians. We need to find the best perfect Bible study. We need to listen to the best preacher on the planet. We need to do all these little schemes to grow in our faith. And we trust our plans and our practices more than we trust in prayer. But if we understand the implications of what Jesus is saying here, then prayer is the most important thing we can do. We can't get it on our own. God needs to give this to us. And so practically what you can do this week, if you look on your sermon notes if you're joining us online, these will be online as well. I've just started listing some of the character qualities of followers of Jesus, of kingdom citizens that we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you can think of more, you can write that in. But I challenge you this week to circle one of these and to ask God to form that in you every day this week, to take Jesus at his word, take him seriously, ask God for these things. And if you're like me, it's really easy to forget what you circle. I'll probably forget it after I have hot wings today for lunch. And so it's good to put this maybe on your nightstand, on your fridge, somewhere you'll see it to remember that we need to ask, we need to seek, we need to keep on knocking and ask God to form us and make us do the impossible. One man who kept knocking on God's door was a missionary named James Fraser. James Fraser. He lived in 1908, and he left to become a missionary in China, in the Himalayas. And he ran into this annoying problem, because every winter, there'd be so much snow, and the roads were poor, and he was ministering to the villages there, he would be unable to travel. It was just impossible terrain to get around. And this frustrated him, this angered him, this worried him, and he started to blame God for this, because he said, God, these people need me. They just began to believe the gospel, and everyone around them is worshiping false gods and doing demon worship. What's going to happen? And at one point, he decided to try an experiment. He said, you know what? It would take me five days to make it to the nearest village. So for five days, when I'd be spending time with them, I'm just going to pray for them. And spring rolled around. The snow melted. He was able to travel. And he was really excited to meet these people and really anxious to see how they were doing. 
But when he got there, he was blown away by what he saw because these people were having Bible studies. They were reading the Word. They were growing in their faith more than the people that he spent the entire winter with, that he could be with. And he wrote this in his diary. He said, if I were to think after the manner of men, I would be anxious about my converts, afraid for their falling back into demon worship. But God is enabling me to cast all my care upon him. I am not anxious, not nervous. If I hugged my care to myself instead of casting it upon him, I should never have persevered in the work for so long, and I might not have even started. But if it is begun in him, it must be continued in him. We have a good father that we can trust in. And so ask him. And here's the reality. We can feel frustrated. We can realize that we have a sin nature and we can never perfectly live Jesus' demands until we get to heaven. But the truth is we can feel peace. We can feel contentment when we realize the God that we are praying to. He's a good father. He's all-knowing. And if you do this, if you continue to ask, continue to seek, continue to knock, you will know from experience times when God has immediately answered those prayers and given you what you've asked for. You will know from experience when you've waited and you've had to go through the process of waiting on God, when he's delayed to give those things to you. And so you'll be able to face the present if you're continuing to wait on the Lord for something else. So brothers, sisters, Christians, ask, seek, and keep on knocking on God's door. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of prayer. We thank you that we can ask you for all good things. And Father, today I pray that as we pray this week, that we would trust you more, that we would know that your timing is perfect even when it seems crazy to us, that we would know you have our best in mind, even when it doesn't seem like that. And throughout this, Lord, we lean on you, trust you, and submit to who you are. Thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Ryan. What a great challenge this morning. Knowing that God hears us when we ask, but it's up to us. Prayer is such a powerful tool, and I, I think so often we forget to take advantage of it, to use it in that way. And uh, I pray that uh, as this week goes before you, that you will choose to ask God, to pray to him, to invite him into your life. And if that's something that you haven't done today, if you, you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, um, we would love to encourage you, to support you, to come alongside you, and to share that with you of what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ. And we have this connection card that you can find in your bulletin there, and, and we ask you to tear it off, fill it out, and uh, mark on the back there that uh, I'd love to know more about uh, what it means to be a, uh, a believer, a Christian. Um, there's also some other next steps. Maybe you did accept Christ today during the service. We would love to know that and be able to get you some resources. If you're interested in baptism or even joining our church membership, we would love for you to do that, to mark that on here. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward at this time. And as they do that, um, fill this card out. Let us know how we can help you, how we can be an encouragement to you this morning.
God, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, we need you. We need you in so many ways. Lord, we can, we can confess our sins to you knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, we, uh, we ask that even just before we come before you this now, that we would give our concerns to you, that we would give them to you knowing that you have the power and the control to help us to walk the road, to give us the wisdom that we need to handle those situations. Lord, as we sing now this song, I'm asking that we would sing it to you as a song of praise in worship for what you're doing in our lives. You are an awesome God. It's in your name I pray. Amen.